The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Thank you, uh, Elise and Steve. Uh, that was beautiful. And uh, it's actually quite relevant to the message that we'll be looking at together this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles or your apps, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open those up now. Uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 42 together. And we're looking at a small text, uh, actually just one verse, that is out of the lips of the patriarch Jacob. And uh, here in this verse, we find a man whose life had become uh, so defined by his suffering that he was no longer able to see or trust the kind and good providence of God, that God really was uh, at work in his life, was in control of his life, and was working things for good. And so what I want to draw our attention to this morning is how we too often respond uh, like Jacob, that rather than um, responding through the eyes of faith and trust, we tend to respond through this very narrow view of our own suffering. And I just want to acknowledge at the beginning here, this is a very difficult subject to engage, um, and that for many of us, the, the present sufferings are great and complex and varied. And so I'm going to do my best uh, to be nuanced as I go, because what I want to do is magnify uh, God's goodness in the midst of our suffering uh, without uh, trivializing our suffering, which sometimes can be hard to do. And I was even talking to a pastor friend this week, just saying, you know, how often I think we as pastors can sound uh, out of touch with reality when we talk about these things. And so I want to be really careful not to trivialize what any of you might be going through right now. I, ha I especially have in mind uh, those of you going through um, sufferings that are being inflicted upon you or have been inflicted upon you, uh, especially forms of, of abuse. Uh, I also have in mind uh, various forms of suffering that may be part of our natural condition, such as different forms of chronic physical pain or struggles with uh, mental health conditions. And so I want to be careful this morning, but at the same time, I, I do hope that we can magnify God's goodness and his kind providence to us this morning in the midst of our suffering. So we're going to be looking at this story of Jacob and, and of Joseph. And while this may be familiar to many of you, um, this is a story that spans several chapters. And so I want to make sure that we're all on the same page and, and I want to catch us up to where we are in this story of Jacob and Joseph uh, before we jump into our verse together. And so uh, let's summarize this story where we're at so far. Uh, Jacob was a patriarch who had 12 sons and one daughter. Uh, Joseph was the second youngest of these children with Benjamin, uh, second youngest of the sons with Benjamin being the youngest. Uh, and Jacob, he did um, one of the stupidest things that any parent could do. He set his heart on Jacob above the other brothers. He favored Jacob. He showered him with love. He indulged Jacob, uh, or sorry, he indulged Joseph over the other brothers, protected him, indulged him, and cared for him more 
than the other brothers. He was clearly in love with Joseph. And Jacob should have known better. Uh, He should have known that playing favorites would tear the family apart. After all, this is exactly what happened uh, with his parents, one having favored Jacob, one having favored Esau. And yet he did so anyways. And as Joseph grew up, because he was the favorite, uh, he grew up somewhat selfish and arrogant. And we see this in the way that he boasted to his brothers, boasting of his dreams that he would one day uh, rule over them. And so meanwhile, uh, Joseph's 10 uh, older brothers, they were turning into bitter, resentful men. And their bitterness grew to the place that it led them to do something terrible. They kidnapped their brother, threw him into a pit, and sold him into slavery. And then to top it all off, uh, they lied to their father, Jacob, and told him that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And because Joseph was Jacob's favorite, uh, because Jacob's life somewhat even revolved around Joseph, his loss uh, made uh, Jacob shrink back into a deep depression. Unable to deal with his grief, he responds in Genesis 37 uh, by saying that that with the loss of Joseph, he is now going to die in a state of mourning. But Joseph did not die. He was sold into slavery, and although many hardships overcame him, Joseph matured in a way that he never could have, having been so indulged and protected by his father. Joseph learned to cling to God and to trust and to serve him, and this eventually created amazing opportunities for Joseph that included becoming the prime minister of Egypt. And with his foresight, uh, with God's revelation, uh, Joseph realized that a famine was coming to the land of Egypt. And so he created a plan and a program uh, to ration and to save food uh, so that no one in the country uh, would starve or die. And so years passed, uh, years and years. And so years later, this famine continues to spread and has now reached outside the land of Egypt, even into uh, the land where Jacob and his family now live. And so Jacob, this is now we're in Genesis 42, our chapter, uh, Jacob sends 10 of the brothers to Egypt to try and buy grain. Uh, He was unwilling to send Benjamin because Benjamin was the youngest and had now become uh, Jacob's new favorite and he wanted to protect him. So the 10 brothers go to Egypt and they they meet Joseph. And when they do so, uh, they don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes his brothers. But the brothers explain to Joseph that uh, they are a family, uh, the, fa- the, the famine has hit hard, and so they need Egypt's help and support in order to, to continue to survive. And so Joseph, he's, he's moved and he's grieved in his spirit, and so he makes a test. He, he wants to know if they really still are a family. He wants to know if Jacob is still alive, if, if Benjamin is still alive, as these brothers say. And so this test includes, what he does is he takes Simeon, uh, one of the brothers, and locks him up. And then he tells the rest of the brothers that they need to go back to Jacob. They need to get Benjamin, the youngest brother, and bring him back to Egypt to show that they really are a family. Uh, and if they do these things, if Benjamin comes back and returns, then, then Joseph will agree to share some of the grain and the food uh, with the family. So the brothers return to Jacob. Their heads are hanging. They're sad. They, they don't have what they need And they tell their father that if they are to go back again, they're going to have to take Benjamin. And it's at this point that such a request, uh, it triggers all of 
Jacob's trauma, his deep wounds, uh, his memories of Joseph, his pain, his sorrow, his hurt, his grief. And it returns him to this place of suffering. And out of this place of suffering, he says in Genesis 42, verse 36, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Or as some other translations say, all these things have come against me. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word now, help us to sit humbly under it, uh, receiving it, being challenged and convicted by it, being encouraged by it. May we not sit over your word thinking we can judge it for ourselves. Holy Spirit, give us understanding uh, of this passage and illumine our hearts and minds to see more of Christ and to trust him and to know that if he, if his gospel is true, then he can be trusted with our suffering. And so help us now during this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to use Jacob's cry uh, to look at suffering through two lenses. First, we're going to look at our suffering through our own narrow view, our own narrow view in response to suffering. And then second, we'll kind of turn it around and, and look at suffering through the way of trust in God's care and his providence, which is his fatherly care in all things concerning our lives. And so first, let's look at a narrow view of suffering. I'm using the word narrow here instead of unbelief. And I'm doing that on purpose because I want to be careful uh, to communicate to you uh, that faith is not the remedy for suffering, as if faith makes suffering disappear. Nor is a blind, unquestioning faith the appropriate response to life's complexities or griefs or sorrows. It is quite often the testimony of God's people that they find suffering only increases with faith. Or uh, God's people find that they are encountering suffering which they never would have found had they not made the decision to turn and follow Christ. It is, as Dr. King said, that we are gravely mistaken to think that Christianity protects us from the pain and agony of mortal existence. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tragedy-packed content and carry it until that very cross leaves its mark upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way that can only come through suffering. And so when I say narrow, what I mean is a lack of perspective, maybe even a, a self-centeredness, or just the human inability to see our circumstances from God's vantage point of perfect knowledge and wisdom. Like Jacob, the most faithful of God's people will go through seasons of life with such narrow views. It is God's kindness to us that he opens our eyes, even just slightly to catch a bigger glimpse of what he is doing, working out his redemptive plan in our life. Yes, even in the midst of our suffering. 
And so in Jacob's cry, we find at least three characteristics of a narrow response to suffering, which I want to show you now. The first characteristic of a narrow response to suffering is making rash judgments and baseless conclusions. I want you to notice the accusations that Jacob makes and the conclusions which he draws here, all of which are not only incorrect, but they're detrimental to his heart and to his soul. Jacob begins, um, you know, he, he, Joseph, had, he had lost, and as far he, as he knew, it was due to an accidental death. But here he accuses the brothers for Joseph's death. And of course, ironically, he's actually more correct than he knows, for the brothers really were responsible for what happened to Joseph. But Jacob didn't share that knowledge. And so the accusation that he's making here, you have bereaved me of my children, uh, that accusation is not coming uh, from fact. It's coming from a place of a grief-filled heart that is looking for someone uh, to blame. And so too with Simeon. For Jacob not only blames the brothers, which in this case definitely is incorrect, uh, but he also jumps to the conclusion that Simeon is dead. But Simeon is not dead. He's simply in prison. And so here too, we see that Jacob rushes to find fault and to jump to a conclusion that's baseless, that he shouldn't be making. And lastly, Jacob assumes that Benjamin will leave never to return, when the truth of the matter is that Benjamin would return with food for the family during this famine. We would assume by Jacob's language that Simeon had fallen victim in Egypt and that Benjamin was scheduled for execution and that his sons were to blame for it all. But where is the evidence for these accusations? There is none. And so in Jacob, we learn this most difficult lesson not to make rash judgments that are fueled by grief and pain, especially when they lead us to lash out against others. In our suffering, it is tempting to look for someone to blame. But often we end up either casting blame on those who are closest to us who care the most, or we end up unnecessarily heaping condemnation on ourselves when it would be incorrect to do so. You know, whenever I meditate too long on my on my brother's loss and on his suicide. The temptation is always there to try and rewrite the story with someone else to blame. The temptation is there to to blame the counselors. I want to accuse them of not doing a good enough job. I want to blame maybe the medical staff for not prioritizing his treatment. Or I want to blame myself for not spending enough time with him. But the safest place, friends, for us, the safest place for Jacob to cast our sorrows and our grief and our pain is on God himself. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. This is a hard, hard saying. And yet, there is comfort in knowing that God is not absent from our trials, that he didn't fall asleep at the wheel, that he hasn't lost control of our life. 
And so it is to God first that we should turn in our grief and suffering. He will save us from making rash judgments and harsh accusations against others who we love and who love us. The second characteristic of a narrow response to suffering is giving in to our emotions of bitterness and anger. It is clear from Jacob's cry that the wound that was dealt to him at Joseph's loss was still bleeding. Now, our deepest wounds of grief and pain will leave a lasting mark on us. And for many of us, it will feel like we will be going through life uh, having lost one of our limbs. And yet when we see Jacob with this aching, open, and gushing wound, even years later, suggests that he has not yet dealt with God as he should have. His first response to Joseph's loss in Genesis 37 was, I shall go mourning to my son in Sheol. And now years later, several years later, it appears that Jacob is making good on his vow. His response shows nothing of God's mercies or comforts, nothing of trust in God's promises that were made to him. Instead, his response shows the bitterness and the anger of a wayward child lashing out with harsh and foolish words. Now, this is not to say that the Christian response to suffering is one of stoicism. Far from it. Jesus is our perfect example of what it looks like to respond to our griefs and our sorrows and our pain. He felt compassion He showed pity. He was a man of many sorrows. He wept when his friends died. And so we are, as his people, bound to this proper response to our own sorrows and griefs. But though Jesus wept, he did not murmur. And though he had great sorrow, he did not complain. And though he cried out in great agony, he did not accuse Jacob would have done well if he had bursted into tears and said, Joseph is gone, Simeon is a prisoner, Benjamin will be at risk, this cup is difficult and too much for me to bear. Lord, may it pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. But he went too far. And by giving into his anger and his bitterness, he allowed these emotions not only to control his heart, but his tongue. Like Jacob, I think many of us need lessons in lament. God is pleased when we bring our angers and our frustrations and our pain to him because it's there that he has promised to meet us. And we will find that it is, as Paul says, that he comforts us in every affliction. But when we internalize our anger, when we hold on to it, when we give in to our feelings of bitterness and sarcasm and cynicism, we not only display a lack of trust in God's care, but inevitably we will end up sinning against others with our words and our actions. The third characteristic of a narrow response to suffering is that we exaggerate our suffering in light of past mercy and grace. 
The story of Jacob is one of a gracious God caring for this beloved son of his. Though he fled from his father's house as a youth, he was watched over and protected in the wilderness. He was given tremendous revelation through his dreams. He made, God made precious covenant promises with him. He wrestled with God and prevailed. Though he did his brother Esau a great wrong, Esau forgave him and showed him mercy and compassion. He was protected amongst tribes who otherwise would have sought to kill him. And yet, despite all of this provision and blessing, Jacob cursed God. It would have been consistent based on his past experience to say, whatever the Lord puts into our hands, he has not forsaken us and he will not depart from us. But how quick, friends, we are to forget past mercy and grace and to exaggerate our present suffering. We write for ourselves a story of suffering which diminishes God's goodness while exaggerating our sorrows. See, the natural mind cannot comprehend God's goodness and the existence of suffering at the same time. It is perhaps easy for us to make sense of a world where a loving, kind, all-powerful God exists or a world where suffering exists but it is hard for us to make sense of a kind, loving, all-powerful God existing while suffering also exists. So as a response to this difficulty, what we tend to do is we, we write simplified stories to soothe our troubled hearts. Jacob's simplified story was a response where he exaggerated his suffering, downplaying God's hand in his life, and just throwing his hands up in in the air and saying, all these things have come against me. Many earnest Christians today downplay the reality of suffering, either by ignoring their own or by being unwilling to enter into the suffering of others. This is a simplified story based on what we think God's goodness ought to be while failing to grasp reality, real life, as it actually is. Others, likewise, believe it will be easier to live without God than to try and explain their suffering with God. And in so doing, they create for themselves new existential crises. For without the existence of a good and loving God, Where then do we get the knowledge of good from? Of evil. What basis do we have to cry out against suffering? You see, modern humanism can explain the impulse that we feel to run from a predator, for example. It cannot explain the besetting emotion of fear and dread that comes with it. It can explain in-group kinship and care, but it cannot explain a man laying down his life for the other. Humanism can explain flowers. It cannot explain their beauty in the springtime. And so you see, removing God from the equation does not solve the problem. It just creates new ones for us. In his book, Lost Connections, writer and journalist Johann Hari tells his own story of of suffering as it especially pertains to his uh, lifelong struggle with depression and anxiety. 
And he says in his introduction that as he began researching to write the book, it meant that he had to be willing to go back and challenge the narrative that he had wrote for his suffering. He makes a really insightful observation there, one that left a lasting mark on me. And so here's what he said. He said, once you settle into a story about your pain, you are extremely reluctant to challenge it. My story, he says, was like a leash I had put on my distress to keep it under some control. I feared that if I messed with the story I had lived with for so long, the pain would be like an unchained animal and it would savage me. See, this is incredibly insightful. The the narratives that we write for ourselves about our own suffering are often a way to protect ourselves from wrestling with some of the hardest questions that we could ask and accepting some of the hardest answers that we could ever be given. But the Bible won't let us get off that easy. Not if we really submit to it. Not if we really wrestle with it. Not if we really take God's word back to him in prayer and lament. And while challenging our own narrow reviews and, resp- uh, narrow views and responses to suffering uh, can often be very difficult, very painful, often reopening old wounds that we thought were closed, the promise of God is that he will be there to meet us in our suffering. And it is there in that place where we will learn to say with the Apostle Paul, all these things God has worked for my good. This is the broad way of trust in God's providence, in his magnificent providence and his care. Now, Jacob, Jacob was fortunate to live long enough to see God's providence and care once again unfold in his life. This is a privilege that that Jacob had that many of us, we will not have. We are not guaranteed answers to our suffering. We are not guaranteed to know what God is doing in our lives. This is very much what happened to Job, who questioned God, but did not get the answers that he sought. Jacob, however, did receive some answers. Jacob learned that God had a hand in his sufferings the whole time, that God was in control, that he loved him and his family, and that he was working all things for good. You see, the story of Jacob ends with Jacob being reunited with Joseph, having moved to Egypt so his entire family would be taken care of. Joseph is reconciled to his brothers, and through humility, he gets just a small glimpse into God's enormous redemptive plan that he is working out in human history. And so he tells his brothers, this is the beautiful end to the story, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Look at all that came from my suffering. This entire country has been taken care of, my family has been reunited, and my family has been taken care of. Now, I want you to think about that for a second, what Joseph says there. Who is it that these words can ultimately belong in the mouth of? Who can really say, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good? Jesus Christ. He was thrown into a pit of death. Why? Because of our evil and our sin and our wickedness. 
but being raised to new life. His resurrection is the proof that we need that God works all suffering for good. And so now Jesus looks at us and he says that you meant evil against me, but my father worked it for your good. In his death and in his resurrection, God moved heaven and earth to save his people from their sin, to restore his creation, to give his people a present hope that can endure even the darkest of our present sufferings. And now Jesus can say to his father, look at all my suffering has accomplished. Every tribe and tongue is being redeemed. My family has been reconciled and cared for and been brought back. You see, the way of trust then is not blind faith. Romans 8.28 is not encouraging blind faith, but it is exhorting us to have a resting faith. Though we may wrestle with God, we rest on his promises. We trust that even if we don't have all the answers, even if we don't get the bigger picture like Jacob or Joseph did, that his purposes are good. And we learn to say, like the Apostle Paul did, if he did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? And so what will we gain by trusting in God's broad, magnificent providence and care for us? Let me close by just encouraging you with three things. First, we gain a preparedness for suffering preparedness for suffering. And here I'm looking at Romans 8, 35. You see, God hates evil, sin, and suffering. So much so that he was willing to give his son, his only son, to conquer the evil and the darkness in this world. And if you believe that, if you really believe that, then you'll understand why suffering can't be ignored. You'll understand why suffering is a reality. The disposition of your heart toward the suffering of others will be one of empathy, of gentleness, being quick to listen and trying to understand. Why? You see, because your faith then will be anchored in a God who could not ignore suffering. You know, many people ask, and this is a a fine, fair question to ask, Why does God allow so much pain and suffering? Why doesn't he just stop it from happening? And to be honest with you, just to be straight, we can't exactly answer that question. We can't give a full, complete, perfect answer to that question. We don't know God's hidden counsel and his hidden will. But while we cannot explain all of God's reasons for allowing pain and suffering, we can explain. We do know what the reason is not. It is not because he doesn't love us. It is not because he doesn't care or that he's indifferent. Because if that were the case, he never would have come down here and gotten involved in our suffering. You see, here's something that we can concretely say. That the God of the Bible is the only God who takes action against our present suffering. And that means, friends, that if the gospel is true, 
the gospel is true, then God can be trusted with our suffering. See, the real question for us to ask, the deeper question for us to ask is not, why does God allow pain and suffering to continue? The real question that we need to ask is, is the gospel true? Because if the gospel is true, then we know that God is not indifferent to our suffering, that he does love us, that he does care for us, that he is not absent from our lives. And so whatever purpose he may have in our suffering, we can know that he can be trusted because he is good and that he loves us and he cares for us. Some people today will say that suffering is just a delusion. Others say it's a, simply random and we must fight against it. Others will say that we must reduce our cravings and uh, desires to minimize our suffering. But only the God of the Bible, through the person of Jesus Christ, does something about it. Not only does he do something about it, but he enters into human suffering, taking on human flesh, suffering what we suffer, taking on all of our hurts and our griefs and our pains in order to lift us up out of our suffering. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other way of living can give you that. So the real question is not, why does God allow so much pain and suffering? But is the gospel true? And if the gospel is true, that means God does not ignore our suffering. And if God does not ignore our suffering, that that gives us confidence to acknowledge its existence, to acknowledge its severity, to prepare for it, and to push back against it. If you still have your Bibles open, look at what Paul says in Romans 8.35. You see, when he said in Romans 8.28 that God works all things for good, it isn't some trite cliche. It is the confession of someone who is prepared for life's many challenges and troubles. And so he says in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Look at all that he names here. He's prepared. He's ready. And whatever suffering may come his way, he knows that his God is working all things for good. So we gain a preparedness for suffering. Second, we gain an attractive humility. I want us to think again about our passage from 2 Corinthians 1. You see, if you live in such a way that you truly believe that God is working all things for good for you, well, here's what that means. That means that everything in this world right now is working for your good. Every speck of dust, every atom, every proton, every molecule is at work right now for your good. All these things are working for your good. And like the astronaut who sees the earth from its orbit, when we see how small we are, but how greatly we are loved and cared for, then friends, this will humble us. And it is this kind of humility that will make our faith attractive because we will have received a comfort from God that we will now have an abundance to share with others. 
It is, as Paul said, that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. The tone of our suffering becomes attractive to those around us. This is why those who have suffered much often make for the best evangelists. What is God doing in your suffering? This much we know for certain. If you're trusting him, he's making you an attractive, winsome instrument of his comfort and care for others. And while whatever suffering you may be going through right now or that you have gone through, whatever purposes the devil, death, Satan's sin may have had for that suffering, God turns it around. And rather than allowing that suffering to condemn us, he takes that suffering and allows us to be an instrument of care in others' lives. And what greater redemption is there than that? Third, and finally, there is a nearness to God, knowing that he is enough. Looking again at our reading from Luke 24. Whatever purposes God may have for us in our suffering, this much is certain, that he wants to draw us closer to himself. He wants us to experience a deeper intimacy with him. And when we meet God in our suffering, we do find that he is more than enough. We see this in how the disciples responded to Jesus in Luke 24. They were confused. They were filled with grief. They had lost someone they loved. They were hiding in fear. And their whole lives had been turned upside down. But when Jesus comes, they burst with joy. And as we see throughout the book of Acts, we know from church history that their suffering did not disappear. But they had Christ. And that was enough. And I think it was maybe in that moment that they learned to say with the psalmist, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, none of what I've been saying this morning is meant to trivialize your suffering. Many of us, in light of the suffering we have faced, uh, need months or years of counseling, of therapy, of medical treatment, or just special care and attention from our friends and family. And those things are all good and godly and should be pursued with earnestness and wisdom. And and nothing I've said this morning should imply to you that you ought to just accept suffering and just sit in it, especially if it's a situation where you are in harm's way, such as a situation of abuse. You ought to be looking for help. God wants to help you through your church family or through your friends to get out of that suffering. But whatever help we may need in our seasons of suffering and pain, as we pursue these things, as we, as we pursue getting help or getting treatment, we can do so with real hope that no matter how deep our pain and our suffering may be, that somehow God is working all of it for good. Friends, what is the alternative? I know this is a hard teaching and a hard saying, 
But where else will we go? Christ alone has the words of eternal life. And so let us, in the days and the weeks ahead, help one another to look to God for our comfort, for grace, and for help in this time of great need. Let's pray together. Father, our God, things are really hard right now. We are going through a season of great emotional pain. Some of us are going through a season of great physical pain, perhaps a years of suffering and pain. And Father, we ask that you would hear our prayers, that you would bring comfort, that you would ease our afflictions, that you would heal our wounds, but also that you would teach us to trust that you are at work in our lives, working all things for good. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.